Do you wanna play a game? Do you like scary movies? Do you wanna eat some brains? Is your chainsaw arm groovy? How bloodthirsty could a talking plant be? Eat your liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Come play with us forever, cause down here we all float. I never drink wine, so you're gonna need a bigger boat. Or a throat to choke, whether you're in the prim or dairy. Got red rum where your blood from, put your dead son in the cemetery. It's him or carry, be very afraid. You'll be our number one fan and get carried away. All working, no play, you know it always means you're in trouble, son. I came to chew gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble gum. What if Quint killed Jaws' his father? What if the Bob's body was marijuana? What if the leprechaun got a job as a bank guard? What if the Wolfman had a cowbell instead of Every Nars? scary movie made since Oscar Wilde was writing letters Had canon to watch them all and tell you how to make them better So put your earbuds in and forget what you're planning It's time to take our heads and shoot them out of a cannon 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 Shoot him out of a cannon. Shoot him out of a cannon. Shoot him out of a cannon. Welcome to Head Cannon. Tonight we have a very Brent's waving for anyone who can't see. Tonight we have a very special guest. He's he's waving and vaping at the same time. Waving his hand and blowing smoke at you, or I guess a vape cloud. It's not technically smoke, right? But uh, I don't I don't know what it is. But so anyway, put it in my, my body. <laughs> just put it put it right in there, uh, Mr. John King. How are you doing tonight? I'm well, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. That's yeah. a pleasure. No, and I know you from uh, from my days in Indianapolis, uh, from comedy sports. If you would, will you just give a little background about uh, about yourself, who you are, what you do? You know, just anything anything like that. Um, yeah, the comedy sports days were were pre fatherhood for me, and then um, so I had to make some adjustments <laughs> i could that was a juggling act that i didn't really want to have to perform um before that i, I mean i've been working as a, a lecturer at iepy for several years now i lecture in the media arts and science program nice. and we i work with a lot of uh students who want to be animators whether it's 3d or the occasional 2d and i get a lot of students in video production as well who want to go into some sort of live action video whether it's documentary or narrative um, and a lot of what I do in the program is informed by um, sort of my background in film studies and screenwriting studies and things like that. I've taught creative writing at Ball State for several years. And awesome. just everything that I have done with my career and my degree work has sort of, you know, it's really just sort of led me um, to this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was all in preparation so. for this moment. <laughs> It really has been built up to this. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Well, and I know, uh, you know, and I know that you are, you know, just through my conversations with you and, and your, you know, I always just appreciate your, your thoughts on on story and, and, you know, books and movies and stuff like that. And I know, um, I, you you know, you've actually looked over a couple of things that I've written and just kind of oh, yeah, yeah. given me some suggestions and, and um, you know, which has been great. Oh, but when we were talking about this podcast, we were, we were kind of going back and forth. You kept recommending different movies you'd like to cover. And everything you recommended, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to see that. Or like, oh, yeah, I love that movie. You know, and everything you recommended, I was like, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I'd love to do an episode on that. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, this is just sort of I, 
I, I never for a minute take for granted that I get to do this for money. I get to talk about the movies and the, even the TV shows that I love and you know, talk about why I like it in a very substantive way, not just because it's cool, although that's part of it, but sometimes it's about I love the, the, I love the story. I love what the story says about the world. I love the character arcs. I love how that character is an analog for this real-life person. Or, you know, these things symbolize that over there. And um, there's just so much more you can get out of, of uh, enjoying a film or a TV show if you can you know, dig a little deeper and find that maybe the director or the writer or somebody was saying something or making some bigger statement. They used to say, you know, don't – if you want to send a message – you know, call Western Union. <laughs> I, I don't. You could just make a film that sends a message too. I, I right. think that's fun. Yeah. Right. What I, I, so think I don't know. I just, this is what I get to do, and I'm I'm really fortunate. And I don't know. I feel like um, the older I get, the less relevant my tastes get with my students. Mm-hmm. I go into class. I'm like, Have you guys seen this movie? And and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You know, they, we, can we watch The Last Airbender or something? Not the Shyamalan, but the Avatar. Okay, right. <laughs> so they always want to watch something that I don't know anything about, and I always want to watch something that they don't know anything about. And every now and then, when the twain meets... Right. Uh, is that the phrase? I don't know. Ne'er, ne'er the twain shall meet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every now and then, when like we, we click, it works. So yeah. This is my, wife got to take, my wife got to take a really good class at IU. It was when we first started dating, and I got to go to like movie screenings with her and it was um it was like comparing the coen brothers movies with with different things oh nice now, I, yeah I'm, I'm getting it wrong but it was like it was a coen brothers based class nice. she doesn't really like those movies very much but i love them and it was like <laughs> a blast to go just like watch these older movies on i use campus every now and then nice that's wonderful the, the coens have this great ability to take virtually any genre or any sort of character archetype or um, even sometimes tropes and put their own sort of Coen Brothers spin on it in a way that we don't, we don't always expect. The Big Lebowski is, uh, you know, 90s film noir. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Burn After Reading is their take on a spy film. Um, what Intolerable Cruelty was, um, gosh, that was, that was like the divorce picture. <laughs> sort of like a, uh, like a Billy Wilder divorce picture, maybe. I don't know. I have to look at that one again, but. Okay. Uh, they always have a like a, a way they can take something that we don't expect, and you know, they they sort of they hew toward what you want to see in that kind of film, but they always put their own sort of quirky stuff in there too that just makes it so much better for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I I, I tend to like anything they do just because I love their dialogue. I love the way they, uh, you know, but but it is kind of cool how they can go from. You know, like hard hitting Western to like ridiculous, uh, you know, just like wildly ridiculous comedies, and, and they kind of uh, can straddle different genres. But my, I, I was going to say, you were talking about, you know, kind of meeting your students where they are and like you wanting to see certain things. It's been interesting because my, you know, I've got, so I mentioned my son is seven, and then, and then I've got two daughters, one's 14 and one's 12. And so I'm, I'm, at, they're at the point where I can like show them some movies and I think, you know, I, I'm like, okay, I kind of want to show them Terminator, but then I'm like, as ah, that, that scene where he like plucks his eye out, is that going to be too much for him? And so I'm like, debate, you know, I'm trying to figure out where this line is between what they'll watch and what they won't watch. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I... Nobody sleeps in your house. And, <laughs> well, it's, well, they really, you know, cause I showed them monster squad, 
Brent when we did that episode, which that'll be a later episode. We'll, you know, but they were, they were totally unimpressed with monster squad. It was, it was dated. The effects were dated. They, it just, it didn't do a whole lot for them. Well, I think you were right. It was more about the nostalgia to watch it today for yeah. someone my age. Yeah. 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 Which, yeah. For them, it just didn't, but then other things like, uh, you know, Bill and Ted, those movies are hilarious. They love those. Uh, we just watched the Gremlins movies. You know, they really enjoyed those. And then uh, the other night we watched Robin Hood Men in Tights. And I wasn't sure how they would take, like, Mel Brooks, like, absurd humor. And they loved it. They thought it was great. There were definitely points where, and you can see, like, even for people their age, like, the sensitivity to. I was like, yeah, these movies are hilarious. You know, if this movie were made nowadays, there probably wouldn't be so many fat jokes. Probably wouldn't be all these gay jokes. Probably wouldn't be... Uh, uh, you know what? Like there are certain things you could just tell. Like, and it's funny how like progressive. Because look, living through the '90s and looking back at like the '40s and '50s and '60s, be like, oh, we're progressive now. Like now we're we're you know we've moved past racism and then or whatever. And then you look back at things made in the '90s and you're like, oh no, we still like we've we've still cut co- like yes. we still come a ways and we still probably have a ways to go. You know, like <laughs> yeah. You definitely see like a, a sort of a midstream between 60s and now when you look at a 90s film and, and sort of the sensibilities have changed somewhat. The interesting about the interesting thing about Men in Tights is being that it's a, a parody of, uh, was it The Prince of Thieves? Robin, Robin yeah. Hood, Kevin mm-hmm. Costner. Yeah. And the other Robin Hood's informant as well, but that was the big one at the time. Yeah. And that, the, the Robin Hood Kevin, sorry, the Robin Hood Kevin Costner movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, y'all remember how rapey that movie is? Like, Especially with Alan Rickman's character, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's charismatic. He's this amazingly charismatic villain, and he wants to cut somebody's heart out with a spoon. And, yeah, <laughs> and yet he's really rapey. Yeah, and it's just uh, uh. yeah. <laughs> I started I started to watch um, Austin the first Austin Powers movie with my kids. Oh, uh-huh. um, and okay, wait, wait. I was like, how because I forgot about it. You know, I was like, <laughs> I forgot the jokes. But the joke that went over really well was when he's he's um he's defrosting and he's peeing and he and, and the, the the announcer's like evacuation complete and, and, she, and the, <laughs> evacuation and and it's like he's trying to pee but or he's peeing but like it, it's wanting to complete the evacuation and then afterwards <laughs> as he's about to leave the facility. Thankfully, my wife is like, "Hey, I think we need to get ready to go." And I was like, "That's perfect because the penis pump scene is about to come on." Oh, okay, yeah. And so, like, I pop, like, uh, I stopped it, and then my older son wanted to watch it more, and so when he wasn't looking, I fast forwarded to the penis pump scene. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to fucking explain it. Don't judge me. Right? No, I feel it. You watch the rest of it, and the rest of it's okay. Yeah, no, I've, I, I've I've done that with different scenes. I I remember I did that in Avengers Endgame, like when okay. when when Tony Stark snaps his finger and saves everybody. For my youngest, my seven year old, we kind of just stopped it there because I I feel like the death of Tony Stark would have hit him like a real person, like like yeah. one of his best friends had just died, you know. So it doesn't come yeah. yeah, and this was whatever it was a couple years ago, so he would have been five at the time. So we do. So you know, I watch it with my wife and my other, my daughters, and and that they were fine. But for my son, we kind of stopped it after after he snapped, and we turned it off. And we're like, oh, and he saved the world in the end, and everybody's happy. <laughs> like, 
everything right. works out just fine for everybody, you know. <laughs> I found like strategic pausing and bathroom breaks allows you to, um, you, you got to go to the bathroom, you know, make the kid go and then jump a chapter and yeah, you can get around things a little bit. It, it's harder now that he's seven as yeah. opposed to like four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the two worst parts about having children is, is, is this, this should be this should be a regular no, segment. The worst part about having kids, there's two. Number one is that like, yeah, you can't really watch the movies that you want to watch or the shows that you want to watch at some point. You know, depending on your your what you believe in and guess in your household. I'll, I'll throw that out there. And the other thing is, I have a theory that you only your comprehension is at eighty percent. Uh, with anything that you watch on TV if you have kids. <laughs> what? Because you're just, always like, distracted? Because you have to you, you have to give a part of your brain to them some attention because you have to be aware that children that are like just walking around without looking at things, just bumping into shit, are doing that. Right. <laughs> and then also they're talking, they talk loud. You know. <laughs> nice. It well, works in your favor sometimes when they don't understand uh, a joke yeah um, for sure you know the sort of adult humor that's tossed into something yeah. that's meant for kids um i, I don't want to give the, this is a new thing i don't know how y'all do with spoilers but i was watching the the, the new he-man the kevin smith he-man okay yeah yeah so if anybody doesn't want that spoiled turn away now away other than the line itself so there's a line where one of the characters says no glove no love okay, <laughs> okay. and i'm like wow that's uh, that's kevin smith for right sure, yeah. but, um, I don't know that it belongs in a He-Man cartoon, that kid, right. but also a kid's going to hear that and not, not understand not register, and yeah. then go repeat it to his mom or something, and that's going to be wonderful. Yeah. Well, I, somebody, man, I wish I could remember the exact joke, but somebody shared a clip of the Animaniacs the other day, and I don't remember the clip, but it was like Prince, the musician, was on, and like Dot was holding him. Oh, like somebody said, somebody said like, put it in the rear or so it was something like that that uh obvious and and she like paused for a minute and she's like mm, no i don't think i will and like and it's like not in yeah. you know what i mean unless you knew what they were referencing but it's like that's like a terribly filthy joke especially for a, a warner brothers cartoon but uh <laughs> um but john you might for our listeners this will be probably an episode that dropped maybe a month or more ago but for you john the episode that's going to drop tomorrow is about uh hereditary with a a buddy of ours uh named adam Dix. he's a guy i've known since elementary school i think and he went to you know he went to school with us we worked with him at pizza hut in bloomington uh indiana but he's he's an animator he's worked for disney he's worked for nickelodeon he did like uh sophia the first rise of the ninja turtles but he's working on a new show that's coming out on netflix called cuphead and Brent, I th- is this based on a video game or something? Do you know what this is? That he's doing? Yeah, it's based on a video game, and the animation kind of looks like an old, like '50s cartoon. Okay, yeah. But like but, very, it's very well drawn. It's right. like a modern version of a modern take of a '50s cartoon. Yeah. Okay. But it's cool. So he was like kind of showing us some of the. So I guess that show drops this fall, and he was like showing us some of the stuff he was working on because he was like drawing while we were recording the podcast. He was working at the yeah. same time. Um, like it looked like he wasn't paying attention to us. I mean, he had great conversation. Yeah. But, but, he, but he was making money and just <laughs> chatting with us. And he showed us what he was drawing at the, afterward. It was it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. 
Or you might have to edit what I just said out. No, you're fine. No, no, no. But yeah, so anyway, I think you'll be interested in that episode. It was a pretty interesting uh, conversation okay. with that guy. But um, but for this episode, do you want to talk about the uh, the movie we're we're focusing on today and and what it is we we finally landed on that you you brought us tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like we we uh, traded messages for a good I don't know what was it, a good seven eight hours of messaging back and forth. <laughs> There may have been some sleep in there, but right. um, it felt like a long time. Maybe it wasn't, but uh, just felt like a long time and a lot of like titles going back and forth. And I think I may have picked a title or two that you'd already done and or maybe you're already planning to do that one down the road. It was, mm. Somebody had dibs on it. But the one that I landed on is one that I always come back to. And it's John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's this just it's a film that uh, when I saw it in the 80s, I was too young to see it. And. Maybe that's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down as films you were too young to watch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, for sure. But that um, that film, it didn't really hit me like it did when I got older. And in the in the interim, there was all this, like, the, the rise of digital effects and, you know, the <laughs> Terminator 2 digital effects, which were, you know, bleeding edge and amazing. Um, and then, you know, you get... Uh, the rock at the end of, you know, the mummy returns sort of then all points <laughs> the, in between the scorpion. Uh, King. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the PS two scorpion. King. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that sort of, um, that spectrum of digital effects really colored how I started looking at practical effects mm -hmm. and how uh, digital effects in five years, you're going to laugh at them. You're, you're just, they're not going to age well. Yeah, um, you'll be very lucky if the film that you love that has digital effects in it looks good in five years, ten years down the line. And there, are, of course, there are films that still look good. Um, for the most part, the Lord of the Rings trilogy still looks really good. Yeah, uh, and it's all like, going on twenty now. Yeah. Um, the Star Wars. I don't give me. I don't want to go down the Star Wars rabbit hole <laughs> too much, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, some it of looks it looks like it's, it looks like a live action, and then suddenly you're it's a cartoon. Yeah. In some time, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas the thing about practical effects that I always appreciate is they look just as good or bad as they did in the beginning, and time doesn't really change our um, sensation as far as, you know, I'm looking at something that's latex and caro syrup and, you know, <laughs> rubber this and that and um, prosthetic this and that and uh, animatronics and that sort of thing it's going to look about the same as it did back then. And I'm going to yeah. know as I watch it just from kind of watching so many films that, um, that I'm watching the special effect, but that's, just, that's the same thing that applies in digital effects. Usually if I can, if I can spot that it's an effect, then maybe it's not working so well. Right. But the thing about practical effects is, um, even though I know they're there, I'm not taken out of the film as much, um, as I am with a bad digital effect. And a practical effect just seems like it's more a part of the story that I'm watching and not something that somebody stuck in there later. Right. So the actors can interact with it a little better. And you don't have, you know, Han Solo awkwardly walking over Jabba the Hutt's tail. <laughs> um, right. You know, you have, you have characters that are, um, they're actually holding uh, the animatronic thing or, yeah. uh, or they're struggling against it. And, and uh, you know, that, the, the moment where, um, I think it's Charles Hallahan, I think it's his name. Um, he's the guy whose head pops off when he's on the table. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and grows legs, spider legs. 
Um, you know, that looks just as bizarre now as it did then. Um, yeah. To my eyes, anyway, the, the listeners and you guys might have a different tech take on that. But um, I don't know. I just the older I get, the more I appreciate practical effects to edit that down. Yeah. <laughs> um, the guy yeah. who made those, he was only like 23 or 24 or something like that. That was, yeah, was that Rob Botton? Yes. Yeah. I was trying to look I mean, for his name. This, yeah. Yeah. Watching this, I thought this is like a, this is like a very special movie as far as the effects and stuff. Like, yeah. Ahead of its time, even, is what I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Botton's career has been really interesting. He's one of the best practical effects guys, maybe ever. Um, and for him to be, you know, for us to have grown up in a world with Rob Botton special effects, uh, that's that's meaningful to me because you, you, you get accustomed to a certain look or a certain, um, just a certain way of doing things. And, um, I want to say Botten worked for Stan Winston. That may be something we have to Google. Okay. Um, but so there's, there's some of that is informed. You mentioned Terminator earlier with the eye pulling out total Stan Winston moment. Um, but I don't know. I just really appreciate Carpenter's The Thing, and not just because of the special effects, but because it's just a damn good horror story. Um, it's basically, uh, you know, picking people off one by one. <laughs> uh, it's, it's sort of like a Ten Little Indians kind of story. Yeah. Um, or, you know. Well, that's a great, yeah, that's a great reference. Or taking, like, Ridley Scott's Alien film yeah. and just dropping it into Antarctica. Basically, yeah. Uh, or yeah. the Arctic. Um <laughs> And, and it's just Antarctica, right? I think it's Antarctica. It's Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. Filmed, filmed in Juneau, Alaska, I believe. Largely, yeah. Hey, I can yeah. IMDB things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm talking, so I can't really Google. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I just love that it's it's got that sort of vibe of this, this alien that um, starts picking them off one by one. The difference in, in, in a way is where Ridley Scott's alien picked them off and used them as sort of incubators. Mm-hmm. Um, this alien assimilates them into its own thing and can mimic them. Um, so, and it has to mimic them in order to keep feeding and keep growing and surviving. Yeah. Um, you know I, what that reminded I, me of is a movie that we, uh, we looked at a while back ago called, um, Anni- no, not, um, Annihilation. Annihilation the- with Natalie Portman. Yeah. But yeah. Portman, yeah, okay, yeah, we're like, things were starting to blend together a lot, you know, it kind of seemed like it was in the same vein as that. De- definitely some, like, lo- I feel like Lovecraftian vibes to both of those, to, yeah, to Annihilation and The Thing, there's some Lovecraftian influence for sure, but, but yeah. No, I dig what you're saying about the effects, and I feel like Jabba the Hutt is a great example of how, like, you know, maybe the, pro- like, the, the practical effects in the original movies, like, yeah, maybe you didn't believe that was uh, an actual space slug, but it certainly looked better than the CGI they tried to do like 20 years later, you know, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> with the, with I, I guess that's the, the long, you make a very concise way of my long winded point, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and maybe I shouldn't pick on the Han Solo job of the hut thing. I just kind of sort of popped into my head as an example, but I, if I remember right, they did that because they needed to, they needed to have the, the footage was Han Solo walking behind Jabba, but Jabba has a tail, and they were used to the. They shot it, and Jabba was a human stand-in, uh-huh. um, and then they had to go in and fix it somehow. We'll just have him step on the tail, <laughs> and they made it funny, um, which all right, fine. Maybe I'm maybe I'm picking on too much, but there are also <laughs> lots of parts of 
of the Lucasified versions of Star Wars that and the prequels too that I can pick on all day long for just irritating me with Oh yeah, just, for sure. Just Obi Wan and Luke pull into Moss Eisley and the stormtroopers walk up to the speeder and all this shit is walking in front of the frame and it's like, Get out of the way. <laughs> That's fucking Alec Guinness. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, let him ah, I wanna anyway. <laughs> We're talking about John Carpenter. Right, yes, John, John Carpenter's the thing, but but no, that's um, but I I totally agree with you with the the practical effects, and it's uh, one thing like kind of as I was reading about this movie, and that I think it was an interesting choice to, I think there are certainly comparisons you can make with the movie Alien, uh, like there are obvious comparisons to make there, and even the movie Jaws, where both of those movies, it was like the less you saw of the creature, the better. And the scarier it became in your imagination. And I like that this movie kind of went the other way. They're like, no, we're going to dive into it. You're going to see what it is. Which I, I think the fact that maybe it was a shapeshifter and it was it never had one form maybe helped with that. You know, so it wasn't just like once you see the alien, you've seen the alien. Or once you see the shark, you've seen the shark. In this movie, it's like it could be any number of different forms. Um so I thought that was interesting, but also how a lot of those scenes, even even though they were practical effects, they were cut in with the live action later with the actors. So I don't know. One of the things I was reading was talking about how this is one of the first movies where, I mean, it's common practice now in big budget movies, the Marvel movies, or really any movie that has computer, you know, that has CGI, where they're acting with a tennis ball or, you know, they're just like, they're pretending that, this mark is an actual monster or a being or something, and that's all they have to go off of. Uh, that this movie was was kind of one of the first movies where the actors were working off of reference points, even though the effects are practical. The fact that a lot of them were edited together later meant that the actors were still uh, reacting from off of reference points rather than uh, anything that you know practical in the moment. At sometimes, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that when you see a film that has been done that way and the actors are still convincing, that's a testament to the actor's skill and it's a testament to the director as well. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, films are shot out of order. And yeah. you don't always have, you know, they shoot scenes on different days sometimes and they're reacting like they go back and do pickups and you have to pretend you're back in that moment. And, um, you know, it takes really talented directors and actors to be able to pull that off on a consistent basis. And with this film... Yeah, maybe Botten didn't have all the special effects done at the time they were shooting it or mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and certain things had to be done a certain way. And I don't know what point I'm trying to make here is, is yes, you are correct. Uh, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> well, and this, uh, uh, this may be somewhat of a non sequitur, but, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about special effects and all that. And it made me think of The Matrix and how... How, like, I think the first Matrix movie still looks really good, but then the second, and I, I like, I like the sequels. I know a lot of times the sequels get shit on, but I still like the sequels. But even, I feel like at the time when I watched it, the second movie, and what's it called? The, um, the Burly Brawl, where he's like fighting all the different Agent Smiths, right? Neo is in that, like, he's on a basketball court. And I even at the time, I was like, in the rain? That's later. I think that's in the third. Oh, but but this is the one where they're like, they're all he. They're like running into him, and he's got a, a a bow staff basically, and he's like running around. And he's like jumping on their heads, 
and it's it's so cartoonish and i remember seeing that in whatever 2001 2002 whenever it was and even at that time thinking like this is a fucking cartoon man that doesn't that's not how a real person moves you know like nobody <laughs> people don't move like that you know <laughs> it's funny that you brought up like the matrix with this one in that um i love 80s movies that pre- try to predict what computer technology looks like <laughs> like in the future and like the opening scene where Kurt Russell is playing chess with the computer inside the voice. Right. He like has to type in, he types in like computer code to like, you know, to like make his next move. Yeah. And, and then he like gets mad. He gets, they're in the, it's the opulence of this base, this base, this base camp that they have is amazing. Yeah. He just takes his coffee or no, he takes his scotch and he pours it into the computer to destroy it and right. kill it. It's like, that, that was like, that's like, uh, you know, two feet of cubic, you know, two feet cubed. Like, it's like someone had to put that on a plane and get that over there. And he's just pouring, <laughs> pouring you know, scotch into it to yeah. destroy it. And I was thinking like, these are like college kids. Because like the next scene is like, there's people like in a fucking helicopter throwing grenades at a wolf. And this is me watching it for the first time, not realizing. It. I'm like, this is like the movie Animal House. <laughs> the grenade goes off right next to the wolf. And then I want to hear like, burn, burn, burn. It's insane. They have all this stuff. They have like more kerosene and gasoline than like than the U.S. government has. It's amazing. <laughs> oh man, you 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 touched on so many things I want to talk about, but yeah. <laughs> I feel like so for at first so first off that the computer scene in the beginning where he's playing chess. That's the only woman, the only female in this whole movie. And I guess it was, it was voiced by Adrian Barbeau, who I think was married to John Carpenter at the time. Or they were dating, yeah. at least. They were they were together. And I also, what, something I read kind of tied that thematically to the movie where um, you can almost read it as an allegory for, uh, like, kind of the Cold War or mutually assured destruction Right, where we're just going to stack nukes and stack nukes and stack nu- nukes. And then when the shit hits the fan, we're just going to blow the earth to hell. Right? But the fact that uh, Kurt Russell's character, he got checkmated by the computer. And rather than admit defeat, he's just going to pour the whiskey in there and destroy the computer is almost foreshadowing uh, at the very end when he's kind of checkmated. Yeah. He's like checkmated by the thing. And he's like, fuck this. I'm going to blow everything up and fucking freeze to death before I let you win, motherfucker. Right? <laughs> so it's like... Snake Plissken! Snake Plissken! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, I'm glad you pounced on the foreshadowing part there because that chess match foreshadows the ending just through and through. Um, and I, it, it's hard to it's hard to talk about this film and not talk about the ending. So again, I don't know how you feel about spoilers. and Oh, it's okay. Are. Yeah, we assume spoilers that are... our audience has watched the movie, or they don't want to watch the movie; they just want to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Um, yeah. So this, the, the the after all the the shit that's happened, and they've all been picked off one by one, and um, and there's one character that they that we think is dead. He just kind of disappeared earlier in the film. Keith, Keith David, David's character, yeah. I think, sort of shows up randomly at the end, and. Um, and Kurt Child's Russell's character, is it Child's? Child's. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's Child's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, 
so, so they're sitting it's kind of a standoff of sorts they're they're both exhausted they're both sitting there and watching the base burn in the background and um i, I almost called him pliskin um <laughs> is it mcgrady mcgrady uh, yeah mcgrady yeah. 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 kurt russell's Mac-Grady. character yeah um, <laughs> not pliskin uh, Mac. <laughs> they have this sort of um i don't know if it's a detente or something but it's it's they just kind of stop um, because they, he doesn't have any fight left in him. Right. But he's also not just going to give himself over. And there's there's some stuff written about this, whether Keith's Dave, Keith David's character is actually the thing or whether it's Keith David's character. Um, right. Childs or whatever from earlier in the film. Um, and it's it, you can kind of look at it either way. Which And I love endings that leave a little bit to the imagination and a little bit to your interpretation. You can assume that the thing took childs and mimicked him and there's one part of the thing i read about it was uh that that you can't see childs's breath like uh, you can see yeah uh, Kurt Russell's breath um i don't know how much that i have to look at it again to really like frame by frame can i see a breath here yeah well and, but, and i i didn't go back and look at it but i read there's that and then some kind of shine in the eyes that they that 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 a lot that not the thing characters had, which I didn't go back and look. It was just a thing I read. But yeah, it was it mentioned the breath and then a certain kind of shine in the eyes that Keith David didn't yeah. have. Um, There's yeah. something. Yeah, the eyes thing is. Um, well, Ridley Scott did something really similar in Blade Runner. Uh, the, oh, the replicants okay. had like glowing retinas from time to time, um, nice. and that's how you kind of see them. But. And there's also a moment where um, Harrison Ford's character Deckard has sort of the glowing red eyes. He does have. I was going to ask. So if you believe Deckard is a replicant, there's some it's, proof. It's pretty much been definitively answered. But at the time, if you believed he was a replicant, you had that little clue. Right. Uh, whereas this this little this ending this this they're too tired to keep fighting. Um, they are just watching the base burn around them, and you almost expect Childs to lunge at him mm-hmm. and nothing happens. And that to me is more terrifying than if he had lunged at him, if he had jumped on, on McGrady and taken him over um, or if there'd been yet another fight, like the, the, they live fight also with Keith David. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> also Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know that this is so detrimental to the story because if this thing, if the thing gets off of Antarctica and somehow, this movie is a lot about survival for sure, you know, of the thing, and it, and if it gets away from Antarctica, like the world is done. Yep. You know, and that's I think that's why it's more scary that like he doesn't just lunge at him to me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wilford Brimley ran those numbers. Wilford yeah. Brimley's character ran the numbers earlier. In I the love film. that man. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was like our age when he did that film. Which no, is cr- which is wild. Always been old, right? Well, and then what? And then he did Cocoon. What? Like three years later? Yeah, like, yeah. Was, that, was it that soon? Yeah, <laughs> he played like a geriatric, like old. I know old that dude. Now. That dude came out of the womb with a fucking gray mustache and fucking liver spots. <laughs> you know, they put a little cowboy hat on. <laughs> <laughs> They were giving him insulin, like, at the age of, like, seven months. You know? Diabetes. <laughs> he comes out of the womb and immediately admonishes everyone in the room for having low blood sugar. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's part of 
his cocoon superpower, isn't it? That <laughs> sends your blood sugar level. <laughs> what a, what, what? Oh man, what a wild super! I want to see an X like somebody in an X Men comic where their only superpower is they can just like detect blood sugar levels, right? Yeah. It doesn't seem powerful, but I feel like it would be really helpful. You know, it's like a band basically of yeah. insulin. <laughs> They're like a walking test strip, you know. They can just like <laughs> shake hands and tell you what you're. Yes. Ow! You shake hands with him, and a little like pinprick comes out of his f- fingerprints. <laughs> oh man, that'd what be was that? And you freak out. Now I'm just checking your blood sugar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine, by the way. <laughs> you don't have diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that guy over there's type one. She's type two, though. <laughs> just know from looking around the room. Uh, love that so the, the so Brimley's character ran those numbers and it was like a mutually assured maybe not, not mutually assured but it was um it was guaranteed that it was going to take over the world if it was left unchecked right and uh, i want to say that the next time we see Brimley's character or a couple of scenes later it's already gotten him right um, which is i think oh, that's, that's a, yeah. like, speaks to another thing about the film that i really yeah. like is you don't see all the kills right um, because if you did, there'd be no mystery as to who to who was the, the thing. thing was. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of like when the dog walks into the room and we see the one character's shadow on the wall uh, early in the film, like that one you can pretty much okay fine. Um, but then when the mystery starts unfolding and we don't know who it is there for a while, and they do the blood test with the the hot wire and uh-huh. that was brilliant. Yeah. Who's who? <laughs> Right, and you think it's the uh, the what's his name Clark or whatever Richard Mazur's character? Like you, you definitely think it's him because he spends time with the dogs, and then it's not him. You know, he's not. Oh yeah, the thing. Yeah. At one, well, I love. Um, so two, there's like this. Uh, what what do they call it? Like a red herring. Red herring sort of thing, where it's yeah. uh, it's sort of like a false alarm. They they're convinced it's him, mm-hmm. and then one of them pops him, and he's not. So right. you now you're a murderer kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Kurt that Russell. was a good role Who's for that him? guy. He's always like, he's always like a goofy dad. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's got that that's one of those faces and one of those yeah. personas where he just seems, um, just like the kind of guy that you would feel bad for if something bad happened to him. <laughs> right. So, yeah. He doesn't have a face like um, one of those guys that you you know you see in a film and you you just don't like them. <laughs> the yeah. Way they look. It's yeah. It's like thank. Thank goodness he found he found he found his wife. Like, yeah. <laughs> who else would love that poor schlub? So I can root for Richard Macer, but I can't root for like uh, the other Richard that was in with Nail and uh, Richard Grant. Like, he's just got one of those faces that I'm just like that guy is just so unlikable just by the face. Um, your mileage may vary, of course. But... Right. When I, I think he 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 read for another role, or he was going out for something else, and then Richard Mazur was like talking to John Carpenter. He's like, hey, what do you think about Clark? Like, I really like this guy, and he, you know, he, uh, you know, whatever, bonds with animals more than other people and, and like, really made an appeal for Clark. And I guess Carpenter was like, shit, uh, okay, yeah, no, if that are, you're Clark then. That's, you know, like, you know, if you love that character so much, fine, you're Clark, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and Brimley was, like, on that dude immediately. Like, 
the speed at which Brimley figured everything out was like almost <laughs> ridiculous. It's like an hour and he, like, right. he had like his computer stats and like well, and that's uh, new, like, the, the well, and, and I like how like it's such an '80s conception of like what computers are and what computers do. It's like the computers like chance of crew infection seventy five percent. You know, if this hits the mainland. The world will be over in twenty three thousand days. It's like the computer. I don't like you input some stats, and the computer's well, like, it's so, like it's so ridiculous. Like that's not how well, computers work. He's playing asteroids. <laughs> like it's asteroids. These like little blobs represent like the things, and then it's like the word cell pops up. Right. Yeah. And then under that, it's like wolf. Right. Yeah. Keep in mind, this is a this is a computer that took like raw code in order to play chess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're not talking about lots of computing power, and yet it had lots of computing power. It's like, and it has to fit on a small field base in in Antarctica. In Antarctica. Yeah. You know? And it was able to run like by what? I don't know. Yeah. But, it was able to run these like advanced global advanced global scenarios of infection yeah. you know and Kurt give... russell's chess computer cost like seven barrels of gasoline a day <laughs> 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 like... <laughs> but you know brand it was 82 so gas was like what 62 cents a gallon or something yeah. oh yeah yeah <laughs> maybe not in antarctica you know, it was a little harder to get right <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like four people died just transporting all that stuff up there you know? <laughs> yeah, Russell support is J and B. It's it's also kind of a waste of alcohol. If you're gonna pour alcohol into a computer to ruin it, there's something way worse than J and B you could pour. No it. man, they had just like they had infinite crates of it. it like, <laughs> well, that's true. Like, there's so much alcoholism in that movie. It's insane. Uh, they, yeah, they drink there's so much so, alcohol. Like, they're partying all the time when they're not doing science. It does feel like a dorm room. From earlier, it's a frat house. Yeah, it's a frat house and it's it's animal house in Antarctica. I mean, it, it is a research base. So, and for yeah. research base, that that whole idea. I mean, these are these are like educated guys that don't necessarily fit with the rest of society. Right. So you have like well, these sort of uh, grad students that couldn't get a job anywhere else, <laughs> so they just keep doing research. Um, but these guys seem a lot older than uh, than grad students. They, yeah. they, these are like government researchers. Yeah, well, I think, I think, maybe they were like I think a in combination the, of the two. In the script, at least Mac, Kurt Russell's character is like 35 in the script. I don't know about the other guys, but yeah, I, get, I, I do get the impression, yeah, they're all yeah. a little older. And so Kurt Russell's, on, by the way, only the he's only a helicopter pilot. And then there's security people. There's obviously the scientists, and there's the, the, the chef guy on, on, on roller skates. Yes. I, like. I liked him a lot. Yeah, that's a, that is a fun character, yeah. <laughs> he reminded me of the kid in Apocalypse Now, like the young, the young oh, yeah. soldier kid in Apocalypse oh, yeah. Now a little bit. <laughs> nice. Well, in this, I had to pull the cast up. Frag so, while listening to a, a, a recording of his mom saying hello to him. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? Oh, she's no. like, oh, honey, I can't wait for you to come home. And then, like, he's like on the gun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Is that where he gets, does he get like speed? No, that's, yeah, we're not talking about apocalypse. Now. We're talking about the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, well, in this, and, and, and John, you would probably know better than I, I would, but 
So this is based off of a novel, John W. Campbell the Third's Who Goes There, yeah. which was which was made into a movie in 1951, The Thing from Another World, uh, which the impression I get is the beginning of this movie as the thing is fleeing from the Norwegian base. I've not seen the 1951 movie, but is this supposed to be a direct continuation where the thing has destroyed the Norwegian base and this this is almost a sequel to that 1951 movie? And the next part of my question is, you started talking about the recent remake. Does that kind of have the same flow where that's almost a, se- a direct sequel to this? But I don't know. So those are all questions. Um, so let me, let me work backward um, chronologically. So the this isn't going to make sense. But the, the, in the order in which the films were released, um, the 2011 prequel sequel, I call it, because it's it, there are some aspects of it that, maybe think it was a sequel and there are other aspects of it that it's clearly meant to be a prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has a little bit of sequely stuff sprinkled in there. Cause we learn more about the creature. We learn more about, um, you know, the, the base and whatever. Um, and they just spend more time, I don't know, sort of teasing out some things. Um, the 2011 is a direct prequel to the Carpenter film. Okay. Now the 1951 film that, uh, Christian Nyby made and Howard Hawks. Um, well, Howard Hawks gets a lot more credit for it than a producer normally does, because mm-hmm. um, Howard Hawks wouldn't really take his hands off it as much as maybe <laughs> some producers would. Right. Um, and Christian Nyby, not being Howard Hawks, was sort of over a barrel. And I think with that film, it's that's the one of the first adaptations of the short story, but. It's Carpenter's is more of a remake in a spiritual sense. Like he takes the, some of the ideas of the short story and some of the ideas that came out of the film uh, and puts its own Carpenter spin on them. And mm-hmm. I think makes it a much stronger film than it originally was. So there's some cool stuff in the, in the 50s film. Uh, and there's some great jump scares that at the time must have been absolutely terrifying because they open the door and there it is. Right. Uh, and anyway, it's. I think the difference, one big difference for me, is that the creature you see a lot more of it in its actual form mm-hmm. in, um, in the original. I keep calling it the original because it's, it's not because in the night in the fifty one version, does it? Is there a shape shifting aspect to it, or is it mostly just like one? Is it like kind of just take one form? It's well, it's it's made of sort of vegetable matter. Okay, and. So it's not, it's not, uh, um, it's humanoid, but it's basically a vegetable. <laughs> so it's, it's like, it's like the, the vegetable gremlin from gremlins too. It's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> like they, they, there's a point where they go into the greenhouse and some of the, the, there are traces of, you know, what's, what the, the vegetable man's been doing. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, he, he behaves in a very, um, you know, sort of instinctive way, like an animal, except he's a vegetable, mm-hmm. um, and there's this back and forth of how <laughs> vegetables can't do that. <laughs> um, and there's also, the, you got to think about in the 50s, we're talking about uh, you know, the, the sort of the beginning of, of Cold War paranoia and we're, we're post-World War II and sort of that reverberating. We had you know UFO sightings were pretty common. And so the, the 51 version ends with this sort of, you know, keep watching the skies message. Right. 
because there are the creatures modern, out there. The modern version, not the modern version, the Kurt Russell version. Does it pay homage to that a bit? Because they had so many weapons in Antarctica, like for no reason. <laughs> because well, that's the Nor- I mean. in case the Norwegians attacked, but they're just a bunch <laughs> of scientists too, right? Yeah, I mean, well, they had they only had so many weapons in the fifty one version, and they had to, there was one guy I think that had a gun or maybe two of them, but they had to like build traps for it. They built that uh, electrical, they electrified a walkway and tricked it into walking down the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that, that, I don't know if you guys know this, and so and sorry to mansplain if you already do, but um, does, uh, James Arness played the thing in the original, the Gunsmoke guy. Oh, okay. Uh, and it was, you can't really tell it's him. Right. He's so made up. He looks like a vegetable. Uh, and I, yeah, and I think he's... <laughs> It's early enough in his career that that's sort of the kind of stuff he was doing. And then um, I think that it's just so hard to compare the two because in some ways it just feels like a freshman level compare contrast paper. Um, <laughs> but in other ways, like spiritually, thematically, there are some really interesting parallels between the two. Um, and almost in, in a sort of a war of the worlds kind of um, what, what's the line the other other civilizations, you know, vast, cold, and calculating, or whatever the whatever the phrase is in the and war of the worlds, uh, uh, they sort of turn their attention to us. They set their eyes on us, and you know, what if in the in infinite space, our number comes up sometime, and something comes and finds us, and it's not friendly. Right. Yeah. Both films do that really well. Now, the 2011 just goes back mm-hmm. into Carpenter, and it, it feels almost in some ways like a fan film of like sort of paying tribute to the carpenter the the font in the credits is the same um they've done like the soundtrack is very similar uh sort of the the character archetypes are very similar they've done uh the the sets are just like down to almost down to the molecule it seems replicas of what was on carpenter's thing Uh, but it's it's just doesn't quite hold together and I, I think a lot of that has to do with the digital effects. If you look at the digital effects in that film now, they're kind of hilarious. Yeah. Some of them, of course, still work, but there's there's other stuff in there that just doesn't work at all. And I think they show too much. Okay. Um, I think there's just a little too... You go inside the thing's ship, and you you see what that thing looked like, what, what inside the ship looked like. Um, you still don't really see it in its true form, because I don't think it actually has a true form. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, maybe on a molecular level or something, it has a like a theoretical true form. But once it starts taking over things, it has to take over things to survive. That's how it propagates. Right. Um, so we're basically talking about, well, I mean, we're basically talking about a virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, without calling it a virus, without having the mechanics of, like all the mechanics of a virus, some of them are in there, though. It has to take over other beings in order to spread itself. And it, it yeah. does not think... It just consumes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, especially when you when you, like the blood test, you know, that's like jumping out, and they don't really explore that. There's like little splotches of blood that like just like runs out, you know, infecting people, like making them storm a capital, you know, fucking believe in all this crazy flat earth shit, you know, like it's, it, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And to kind of piggyback off that, and and Brent, you're you're a little pixelated, I think. Your connection maybe isn't great right now, but no, I think I think there's definitely a theme, and this is kind of early for this 
or I don't know, an early example of this kind of theme, and I think you can see it in some of Carpenter's other stuff, but of, almost, I guess you could call it toxic masculinity, right? Because these guys, like, identifying who the thing is and who's not the thing, uh, you know, requires some kind of, some intimacy, some confession, some in- empathy, uh, you know, and, like, being being honest and, like, close to each other, but then they're all afraid of, like, opening up to each other and, and uh, you know, not being manly about things. So it makes it harder for them to to identify who the thing is and who may have been infected. And But then there's also, and I read a little bit about this. I didn't get a chance to dive into it, so I don't want to go too much into it. But also about how, I mean, this was kind of early, well, 82 would be pretty early in the AIDS epidemic. But, you know, I get, but John Carpenter had, Bill Lancaster wrote the screenplay and the blood test was one thing that Carpenter really wanted in there that he made sure to like, you know, put in there. So I, I almost think there has to be some kind of allegory with the, with the AIDS epidemic and that kind of paranoia and who's effect, infected and who's not. And the only way to tell is by testing the blood. And, and I, 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 I want to read more about that. I didn't have a chance before we, we, this, this episode we recorded, but I feel like there's, there's some more interesting stuff there to dive into. Yeah, with um, with that scene in particular, the blood test scene, um, it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the whole film. Mm-hmm. And it's it's of course it's suspenseful for us because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, so if you're uncomfortable when you are, you know, when when you're in suspense, uh, then okay. But as far as what those characters are going through, that's incredibly uncomfortable because they don't even know if they know yeah. they're infected. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> what's it maybe one of the more humiliating things in the film is those three guys that are tied together on that tiny little bench. Yeah. Yeah. Proximity to each other, mm. like probably more like tighter than they would be comfortable with sitting. Yeah. Uh, which goes to that sort of toxic masculinity. There are no women on this base and right. it's just dudes being dudes. And I don't want to go down the locker room talk, but that's, I mean, that's just sort of that vibe is definitely there. Right. And, this sort of uh, hyper masculinity. I mean, Kurt Russell's always played these sort of hyper masculine characters. Uh, he, he's done a few other things, but he kept, he keeps coming back to sort of the snake Plissken types and the uh, McGrady types and the death proof guy. And right. on and on and on. <laughs> well, and, uh, and I almost feel like like the fact that he's so much more detached emotionally than almost these, any, like, I feel like that's kind of what makes him the hero. And uh, we'll get into this. Cause I know you want to talk about this too, but, um, Big Trouble in Little China is one of my favorite movies ever. And I feel like it's almost pointless for anybody to kind of satirize the action hero kind of archetype after that movie because they do it so well. But I feel like there's a little bit, uh, like there's a hint of that in here too, where Kurt Russell's the he- quote unquote hero because he's so like emotionally detached and he is like the ultimate like masculine man, you know? Yeah. During that blood test scene, am I pixelated? By the way, you're like, you're you're a little glitchy, a little splotchy. Yeah, it's like during the blood test scene, it's almost like it, it was almost like he was Jack Burton again. Like <laughs> when the shit hits the fan, when the rains are pouring, when the, all the cards are in the other person's hand, Jack Burton. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, the, the Jack Burton character is one of those that you could probably do a whole podcast about him and a lot of this stuff's already been written and talked about because the internet's already written and talked about just about everything. But right. um, when it, when it comes to characters that do such a great job of lampooning action heroes, I mean, Jack Burton is just, 
he goes through, I mean, the entire film he talks like john wayne right uh, it does like it's like a john wayne impression the whole time and that's just it he's doing an impression right of john wayne who was doing an impression of what masculinity was thought to be right yeah um you know don't get it twisted john wayne is masculine in that sort of subjective way that if that's what you think is masculine you're going to think that that's that he's masculine Remember when uh, you played or, Genghis Khan, though? That was weird. <laughs> Look. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, Dude, yeah, that, that was, was weird. Old, like, they were like, who's more masculine than John Wayne? Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Let's put John Wayne in Genghis Khan somewhere. Yeah, but, it, but, I, but I feel like it's almost, um, you know, what was it? Uh, Brando in, in Rebel Without a Cause. Am I, that was him, right? Am I confusing things? Or is that James Dean? That's James Dean in Rebel. Yeah, um, yeah. What's 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 the Brando? What's, what's, what's the Brando role I'm thinking of? Um, the the wild one, I think. Sorry, or even a streetcar named Desire. I think that's all kind of like Brando in a streetcar named Desire, where he was like playing a kind of macho, fucking you know the kind of person like he wouldn't want you to be, and but we kind of like hold that up as like the ideal of the ideal of masculinity. And I feel like over and over, you know, whether it's even in the current, the modern area, whether it's like uh, Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad or uh, Rick from Rick and Morty or Joker from, you know, I feel like it, people keep missing the point that like, no, that's not a person to aspire to. The po- the point is that you should not want to be that person, you know? <laughs> yeah, we are making fun of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I feel like with. With Russell's character, I don't know where I was going. Where was that? Where, where were we? Sorry, no, we were talking about Jack Burton, and and kind of we were on that on that thread. Um, yeah, so so Big Trouble in Little China is is Carpenter's take on so many things all at once. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a kung fu movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a reluctant action hero, sort of anti-hero. I mean, he's not. Um, he, he's got that John Wayne vibe, but he's also that's a front, right? He's, He's doing an impression of a guy doing an impression of masculinity. Right. So he's like a, a copy of a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Losing fidelity um, each time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, he, you know, of course, he's got the, the mullet and the muscle shirt and uh, the, you know, the ripped jeans and they're running around with Tech 9. So the, 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 that's one of the best things about Big, Big Trouble in Little China to me is that it's more comedy than an action. Yeah, for um, sure. And it's not trying to make some huge point, but you can certainly find some points in there. Um, maybe the, I mean maybe that's a product of Carpenter had already done really serious films he really, you know he did like uh, a serious action film already in Assault on Precinct 13 yeah. and he'd, he'd already done serious horror a couple of times uh, and you know he needed maybe to get away from that and do something that was just silly and the guy's not really known for comedy uh, but you know it doesn't mean he can't do it um, right. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and I'm not going to say that it's a great film, but uh, <laughs> there are moments in it that work really well comedically. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I'd even call that a comedy. Yeah. No, I certainly uh, saw that. Uh, I feel like that was on HBO a lot when I was a kid. But I, but yeah, I feel so like you... yeah, there are definitely comedic moments there. Um, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. They Live. I feel like is is you well, know, there's a yeah, lot of comedy I mean, there. They Live is. I think that they live is as close as you're going to get Carpenter to doing a comedy and that's satire. Right. Yeah. You know, he has to say, he basically satirizes the world. Um, but 
you know, another another thing about they live is it's it, the aliens have already taken over, right? And we just don't know it. Yeah, um, he, he tinkers with similar themes from film to film. You can you can see maybe some of the films that he sorry some of the themes that he explored in the thing are reverberating a little stronger in they live. Um, you know, the thing toys with this idea of what would happen if this thing took over the world and they live is a world in which aliens have taken over and we don't know it. Right. Yeah. I feel yeah. like there's another one in the middle that I'm missing. I just pulled Carpenter's <laughs> stuff. Up no, on well, and, and I, and I know you wanted to talk about that, especially that 10 year stretch he had there, but, but I know that um, this movie, the thing is part of a trilogy or what Carpenter considers a trilogy, which I haven't seen the other two movies. I need to do that. Um, but it's this one, and then what? The Prince of Darkness, or Prince of Darkness, and then In the Mouth of Madness. He kind of considers considers his uh, Apocalypse trilogy, right? As he calls it. Yeah. Um, of I think of those, In the Mouth of Madness is the one that I've seen, I think, just once. So it's hard to speak to that one. Prince of Darkness I've seen a number of times, and um, that film scares the living shit out of me yeah and it, and it always has i mean i saw it again when i was too young to have seen a film that scary um, and it doesn't scare me in the same way mm -hmm. but it still scares me <laughs> um you know back then it was it was like you know when you grow up in the bible belt uh, or north of the bible i don't know if indiana is technically the bible belt or maybe we're the bible naval or something <laughs> close I, I don't enough know. yeah um, you know when you're raised with like these these sort of fire and brimstone Christian values and you know, you're taught to not only fear God, um, but also to fear Satan mm -hmm. and, you know, look, be on the lookout for the trickster and the enemy and all this stuff is in your vocabulary. Uh, films where characters deal straight up with Satan are absolutely fucking terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they're, this is what, this is what he looks like, right. um, which you know, we it goes along with like the mythology you were, you were given or, yeah. you know, and I think what makes it um, even even more terrifying is that he can take so many forms. Back to the thing, right? Um, he can take so many forms. Yeah. You know, he looks like um, Captain Howdy in The Exorcist, or he looks like uh, the the thing that shows up in the lamp in that Amityville horror movie, the demon that shows up in the lamp. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but um, or he looks like just a green tube of liquid with this essence of evil floating around it and swirling and if you get too close to it it'll shoot the green liquid at you and turn you into one of its like zombified followers and uh, <laughs> god prince of darkness was just wow the, the guy that's walking up the stairs and he's he's singing in sort of this panicked sort of he's, he's terrified but he's also he's got a knife and ugh, but even more terrifying than that is watching how Carpenter doles out the dream sequences in Prince of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Now that first one is just a little blip and it's like low grade VHS and you hear like this is not a dream or something uh, but it's kind of hard to hear and you don't really know what's happening. It's just a little blip. What the hell was that? It looks like somebody was watching TV and they cut away but it's sort of you get more of that. He keeps cutting back to it throughout the film. He sprinkles them in there and you see more and more and more of it until finally uh, you see enough of it, the camera swings around the front of the church and you see this cloaked sort of silhouetted figure raising his arms and he's got this like um, sort of a cape on and you can't see his features or anything, but it's it's a man standing there uh, in the doorway with this weird light behind him and this fog and weird 
shit and it's just like oh god it's satan you know this, <laughs> the devil is right there that's you're looking at him um but then he puts a twist on it later and the, i think the last time he goes back to the church uh the the sort of flash forward or flashback or just low-grade vhs looking dream sequence uh <laughs> is the woman who was one of the one of the scientists and her walking out of the church and walking up to the camera is even more terrifying in some ways because her face is just it's got this this look on it that's like i'm 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 coming to eat you essentially <laughs> it's this weird it's terrifying um it, it's still even talking about that film gets the goosebumps going for me huh. um so i guess this is just as good a time as any to bring this up is this idea of the run that john carpenter had from 1978 to 1988 uh, we're looking at 1978's halloween which really put Carpenter on the map in a way that nothing he'd done prior to that had, had really resonated quite as much as Halloween did. 78's Halloween through uh, They Live in 1988. Mm -hmm. Here's what he did in between, and y'all can Google just as easily as I can, but maybe <laughs> listeners can't. Um, so there's Halloween, then there were two TV movies, which I don't really count, but there was Someone's Watching Me, which was kind of a stalker TV movie. Uh, and then he did an Elvis uh, biofilm with Kurt Russell with Elvis, which is pretty watchable. Um, but again, TV movies, I don't really oh, count. Oh, was that. it Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell was the voice of Elvis in True Romance. Oh, that's right, he was. <laughs> I, I feel like he's done Elvis a couple times since then, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought that was good. No, you're, you're fine. Um, I was just trying to... I, I dismissed the TV movies for sort of my own headcanon reasons, I guess. Um, <laughs> they don't... They're not the same thing as a theatrical film. Right, yeah. There might be people who would argue with that, but uh, I, I don't know. There's stuff you can do in a theater that you can't do on a TV screen. Yeah. Um, so for me, I see them as sort of separate spins on the same art form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Yeah. And, and I look at that run... And I'm biased because I love John Carpenter, but I have gone in. I love lots of directors. I have gone into the IMDb rabbit hole a number of times yeah. looking at, you know, everybody from Hitchcock to Spielberg, like who else had a 10 year run of that many cool kick-ass films without a clunker. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of that's down to subjective, you know, your own tastes are going to vary, whatever, you know, you might look at Hitchcock's run from psycho to, whatever was was uh, late 60s early 70s psycho was 60 i think uh, or you might look at like you might start at north by northwest and move forward or something but there's always going to be something in there even with folks like hitchcock or spielberg that just ah, you know that one didn't do anything for me or that one was just kind of a clunker or a misstep or you know that director was trying something there that eh, swing back and do this other thing um whereas carpenter was just he was just, for whatever reason, at the height of his powers between 78 and 88. And then he fell off. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about Memoirs of Invisible Man earlier. And, um, you know, it's fine, but mm. I don't call it great. Uh, it's watchable. Some people hate it. Uh, I, I guess there's some drama between Chevy Chase and John Carpenter because of that <laughs> film. Because Chevy Chase was Chevy Chase. I was going to say, I feel like Chevy Chase has drama with everyone he's ever worked with. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know want to jump ahead he does uh another tv movie body bags which was which was fine i like it it's fine 
Rocky movie. And then In the Mouth of Madness, which I've only seen the one. He has a 10-year run of, of sort of quality. He does the remake of Village of the Dam. He does a sequel. And so he does a vampire film called Vampires. Oh, right. And then Ghost of Mars, which is... Oof. That... <laughs> <laughs> Ghost of Mars just makes me want to say woof. <laughs> I ne- I never saw that one. I remember I, I I remember enjoying Vampires when it came out well enough. Uh, who's is that? James Wood is in the lead. That that yeah, that James Woods nutbag. in that. Um, James Woods and um, I want to say there's. Let me see who's the other. Uh, James Woods, Dan- one of the Baldwin's. Daniel Baldwin is in it. Oh right, yeah. Um, Maximilian Shell. Oh, well, I I remember seeing that in the theater, being like, and and enjoying it, thinking it wasn't too bad. But, but no, I was looking at other directors because you had mentioned that you know Carpenter's ten year run there, and I and I agree. I was you know I was looking at Spielberg, Kubrick, Scorsese, Cameron, Tim Burton, Tarantino, and they all had like good runs, but nothing where they put out like, you know, seven to like really nine solid movies that maybe didn't hit at the time. Um, you know, because I know I don't think the thing was really uh, acclaimed at the time, box office wise or critically. But I mean, you look back and it's one of the biggest cult classics. I mean, I think everybody can look back and appreciate the thing. But which is wild that I think he was supposed to direct. Um, what was it? I wrote it down. Oh, he was going to direct Firestarter, and then I think he lost that because of because of how the thing did because it didn't do that well in the box office, but. The only, and I think, I think Carpenter still has the edge, but the only other director I could come up with that kind of had a solid 10 year run and there's, there's a clunker maybe in here, but so Rob Reiner, right from, from 1984 to 1994 did this is spinal tap, the sure thing stand by me, the princess bride, when Harry met Sally misery and a few good men. And then followed that up with North. So that's a that's a pretty hardcore run. But I but I, I I don't know those movies. He maybe has more classics in there. But but uh, but Carpenter, I feel like certainly has more movies in his run. So that was yeah, the only I guy mean, I could come up with. It's not always I mean, obviously it's not always quantity over quality, right? Um, you know, there may be directors out there that did you know four movies in ten years, or <laughs> two movies in ten years, and they're fucking amazing, right? Uh, Kubrick, you know, is yeah. one that did. You know, he would take like 10 years off between films kind of thing. Um, or how many, I think it was almost 15 years between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, sounds right, yeah. Well, wow. 10 or 15 years, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. But I'm sure that there's, it's not always about compressing as much into one period of time. And I know that this is a really weird sample that I've taken. It's sort of arbitrary <laughs> 1978 to 1988, leaving off, you know, things like Dark Star and Assault on right they're fine but they're not as good as halloween was um if you take a director's first big great film and go 10 years ahead from that you know where are you going to find somebody that can do a a a run of this many like quality genre pictures without a clunker yeah Um, Yeah. and i'm sure they're out there and haven't found them yet maybe the people (laughs) if you have a comment section they'll it'll blow up (laughs) maybe they'll let us know yeah but we'll blow up yeah yeah with our our 12 listeners but no that's that's something i found and and in doing this podcast i've realized that guys like kubrick guys like hitchcock how many movies they actually directed before they became 
Hitchcock, you know, or before they became Kubrick. You know, they had like 10, 15 movies under their belt before they did anything that was like considered a classic, you know. Or at least Hitchcock Hitch- worked for, he toiled for years in the British film industry before he actually got a shot at making something really big. Yeah. And uh, I think he had to like essentially come to America to make the big jump. Yeah. Um, and even then it was, what is there, 15, 20 years between Rebecca and Psycho? Mm-hmm. Um, and Rebecca is the only film of his that ever won Best Picture. <laughs> right. Uh, and Hitchcock never won Best Director. So I don't know if you put a lot of credence on the Academy and its its awards and stuff, but um, that's a whole other rabbit hole to dive down. It's like great directors who never won Best Director. Right. <laughs> um, so you, know, you get guys like Kubrick, who wasn't even a filmmaker in the beginning, he was a photographer. Mm-hmm. And he spent a ton of time doing photography and photojournalism and things like that. And then he drifted into, um, I want to say he did documentaries. I'd have to look at his bio again, but I know he's got two early films that were narratives before he did anything on the level of like Dr. Strangelove. Right. Yeah. Um, he had done a handful of, of full lengths before that paths of glory is in there. Um, and fear and desire is another one. And, um, he did a couple of like, sort of hard-boiled film noir kind of things before then. Um, but yeah, you're right. These guys, they toiled for a while before they became the filmmakers that they became. And that goes to that sort of Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours of doing something before you become great. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so maybe those were like, for Hitchcock, maybe that was his Beatles in Hamburg days, you know, <laughs> toiling in the British film industry. Um, whereas Carpenter, to me, and he just felt like a lot of his sensibility and a lot of his talent materialized in a, in a very short amount of time in a, and also in a very short amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, what he did prior to dark star, his student films and things like that, you know, it, it was almost like a, almost like a George Lucas overnight thing. Right. You, know, you go from student films to, you know, something like American graffiti, maybe T.S. And then, you know, to jump from uh, American Graffiti to was Star Wars the next one? Um, yeah, it was something like that. Well, and the thing, I mean, the thing was pretty much, that was Carpenter's first, like, studio film, right? The thing. Yeah, I mean, Halloween was done fairly independently. Yeah, um, yeah. Had, a, well, I think, one producer on it, and he still maintained creative control. And that also was another thing that sort of reverberated through his career. He had to have his name on the title that always had to be John Carpenter's whatever. <laughs> right. Um, and so now I think there's one exception. I want to say the, there's maybe a, a ladder that doesn't have that on there. Uh, well, I, I, I would, I'd be curious about Christine. Cause I feel like Stephen King has that same thing. It's either Stephen King's this or John Carpenter's that like, yeah, what do you do when it's both of them? I don't. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King and John Carpenter present. Um, I'm looking at this. Starman, yeah, it's John Carpenter's. Hmm. That's Starman. But um, uh, prior to that, we're looking at Christine. Oh, IMDb, don't let me down now. <laughs> a, f- a film by John Carpenter. Um, that's on the one of the posters. It's a film by John Carpenter. It's not John Carpenter's this. Right, right. They spun it. And they spun, yeah. Well, and that's, and so, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, I think Toby Hooper 
almost did this movie or was going to direct it at one point who of course he you know he directed poltergeist texas chainsaw massacre salem's lot um but yeah, i think toby hooper was was going to do it but but this had something of a i don't know of lengthy i mean four or five years at least of like kind of production i don't know if you say production hell for this one but where it went back and forth between different writers different directors before it finally landed with john carpenter yeah. are, are we still talking about the thing or the thing about... yeah 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 um well you know it was one of those properties that um you know, I think that it was kind of being kicked around the idea of maybe remaking the the, the Howard Hawks Christian Nivey film, um, or revisiting it somehow, or that maybe it was time to look at that film in a in in a new light, or sort of reshape it to modernize it, something like that. But you know how it is; it takes just forever for a film to get off the ground in Hollywood. That you know, stuff could be languishing in the trenches for five years or even more before. You know, somebody gets attached to it that's actually serious about doing it and won't let go of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is another thing that makes Carpenter's ten-year thing all the more remarkable. Is that these are not films that he wrote necessarily. These are films that he got himself attached to and wanted to do, and he just he just would just bear down and make them. Yeah. And it, it got to be. It got you talk you hear interviews with him now, and you read things interviews with him and stuff like that. He talks about how he couldn't get anything done in Hollywood today. There are too many people with too many, too many hands in it, too many fingers in the pie. Um, and he's one of those guys that needed more creative control than what Hollywood would afford him right now. Yeah. And you know, there'd be like 18 different producers coming down. So you got to get a Pepsi can in this scene. You gotta, <laughs> you know, we, we got to have so-and-so in this shot because you know, they're residuals or some bullshit. Like there's gotta be all this other stuff is, is in play. And he's like, I just want to tell a story. Right. Uh, or make a solid movie and um, put my name on it. Yeah, <laughs> right up front. <laughs> so, so can we talk? That was great. I love that segment of of the of the ten year run. Man, I was so I was so I was so stoked whenever you you proposed that earlier in our in our in our Facebook group chat. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I love it. I love the Facebook group chat. I hope that we continue to talk on that. By the way, after all okay, yeah. Um, but I want to know, guys. We didn't touch. We all we, we teased it. We 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 tweezed it in the in a very we, sexy way. <laughs> we tweezed it. But, <laughs> um, uh, what happens at the end? We never really said that. So I've I've heard a couple theories, right? Because like at the very very end of this movie, the thing, Kurt Russell offers the bottle of uh, of scotch, right, up to, to Childs. Right, and Childs drinks from it. So the theory is like, is Kurt Russell the thing? And he's put his hit. He's put the virus on the mouth of the bottle, <laughs> infecting him. I mean, I th I think it's there's meant to be some ambiguity there. Um, and I feel like you know I heard the the writer wanted to go one way with it and make it more like. Uh, that that Keith David's character was the thing, and Carpenter wanted to leave it a bit more ambiguous. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, John, I'd be interested in your take, but this will kind of lead us in just because we're kind of at the, at the end of the time for the podcast, kind of at the end of the movie. So I'll kind of go ahead and give my head cannon because this leads right into that, and then you guys can <laughs> give me your head cannon. But so, so so my head cannon is that whether it's through Keith David's character or Kurt Russell's character, 
something survives, something escapes, a little blood sample of the thing, which now has all of these characters in it, right? Because it's sampled Keith David, it's sampled pretty much everybody. So then it goes and creates a new base as these guys who they don't realize that they're the thing. So then it's like basically the movie is an endless loop of the thing escaping yeah. and becoming new human characters, which think they're going to yes. be infected by the thing. But really everything is just always the thing. That's yes. It's an endless, it's an That's endless loop. One. It's an endless loop of things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Um, my, my head cannon was maybe a little more mundane than that. Brent, you want to give us yours first? I'm the guest. <laughs> oh yeah. Absolutely. Oh, oh. Excuse me. Yes. I don't want to okay. step on you. You're the host. Co-host. Co-host. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I think. Okay. I, I think I think McCready. I think he's the thing. All right. And here's what he does. Here's what, here's what he does. You see, fucking. If Wilford Brimley could create that system of deciding how the world was going to end in like an hour, <laughs> he made the ship. That ship is fucking complete. Even if there's like gloves and like tools on top. McGrady goes and he boards Brimley's ship. Oh, okay. And he flies it, right? He grabs the throttle. It immediately checks his blood sugar. <laughs> he flies it, man. He flies it right into the Caribbean. Right into the... Because why would you go from cold to something else cold? He wants... Like, this thing wants to survive. It's thriving in something that's lush, like the Caribbean islands, right? Right. So he flies into the Caribbean islands. He crashes, right? He crashes, bonks his face on the throttle, man. That he pulls, it pulls his eye out. The throttle pulls his eye out, like in the fucking Terminator, right? <laughs> it's so terrible. It's it's really gruesome, right? He then has to establish a beachhead, right, of sorts. He has to, he because he's the thing. He's got to, he's got to assimilate, and then he's got to conquer. So what he does is he becomes like a a schooner boat captain. Right, and he makes he makes everyone that he that 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 commissions him. He, he he's called Captain Ron, and what he does is right, he, he 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 lures them into a false sense of security out in the ocean, and then just creates he creates more things, brings them back. They go to the Caribbean. They ha he buys more boats because he's got more money. Th these things are like now traveling globally across the seas to the different uh, to the different continents. Yeah. I think there's seven of them. I, <laughs> I dig it. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, just tie. And so, really, all of Kurt Russell's movies really are just like one shared universe where it's the thing spreading. <laughs> Snake Plissken has one eye. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Snake Plissken is the thing. Wow, man! I don't know if I can follow that. I feel I feel this intense. So, I guess this is my, maybe my first time doing headcanon that other people would listen to. I've got headcanon examples of things like um, in my in my head. I think Downton Abbey ended at the end of season three, and I, and I disregard I'll everything. I'll take your word for that one. Yeah, well, you may not be your thing, but like if you, if anybody out there watches Downton Abbey, I assume that it's over at the end of season three okay and it doesn't go on after that and everything after that is like you know fan fiction or something i don't <laughs> care oh wait i've seen their cookbook that's a good cookbook uh, <laughs> no 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 i've actually i've seen i think i've seen three seasons of the show actually because kara and i watched it yeah yeah i think we stopped watching after the third season 
Yeah, the third season. Okay, the, okay I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, the beginning of the series, Matthew Crawley gets the letter, and his life is about to change, and he's invited to come live with uh, the, the, the people at Downton Abbey or whatever, and uh, or he, he goes to meet them or something. He's like the heir, or he can give them an heir. Uh, it's convoluted and very English. Through the course of that three years, is there's the, there's a struggle of, uh, you know, will he get together with uh, the the lady that is supposed to have the baby, um, and then they finally do, and they consummate, and they have, they have a baby, and he's really happy, and he's driving down the road at the end of the episode, of the at the end of season three, driving down the road, got a smile on his face, got the top down in the car, fucking wrecks the car and dies. And it's one of the most just like, what the fuck? Uh, Patton Oswalt's <laughs> tweet after that was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so angry. Yeah. And I was too. Um, and at, I just swore it off. Like, nope, I'm done. I'm done. And in my, in a way, um, that's a clear, complete arc for him. Right. His life changed. He did everything he was supposed to do. And the end of the arc is he dies. Right. Uh, he's I- the, so the, for the series to continue after that was just kind of pointless in my head. So that's my head cannon. For Downton Abbey, but we're not talking about Downton Abbey. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we're talking about Snake Plissken. No, we're not talking about. We're talking about Jack Burton. No, <laughs> we're talking about a helicopter pilot named McCready mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a guy, uh, a, a big, a big guy at the at the pole called uh, Childs. Childs, yes. David? Yeah. And so they end up together at the end, and the shit's burning. There's a bottle of alcohol between them. And I like to think that uh, this is kind of grim, and it doesn't go very funny, uh, which may not be the, what we want. No, it's perfect. It's funny in my head, though. <laughs> I think it's kind of grim, but I'll, I'll go with it. Um, I think that they don't trust each other enough, and they don't move, and they end up freezing to death out there. Which yeah. is kind of bonkers because you'd be able to know if if you're Childs or if you're McCready and you're sitting there opposite someone and you're sitting there staring at each other. Like at some point, I mean, the thing doesn't like cold. Right. It's going to freeze too. That's the only way it can be dormant. Fire doesn't even kill it. It just sort of like subdues it for a while. Right. Um, it can. It's still active cells and things even when it's been charred um but when it's frozen that's like the only time it can be controlled and contained uh so you're they're sitting there opposite each other and they freeze to death or they or they both go dormant but i I have a feeling that they're both humans who just don't trust each other because of the trauma that they've been through Uh and they don't move and they sit there and just freeze to death staring at each other yeah um which is i think wild because at some point if it was actually the thing it would have attacked the other one do you think um, they get naked and share each other's body warmth you know it just really depends on how much that bottle gets passed back and forth <laughs> What's that, you know that everybody gets prettier at closing time and you know when when this thing is i mean the thing has needs yeah <laughs> well that's that's yeah, maybe in an alternate global domination yeah <laughs> well, maybe an alternate head well, that's the thing. That I mean, that goes along with the theme of the movie, right? This this toxic masculinity masculinity would prevent them from taking life saving measures 
of stripping down and keeping each other warm. <laughs> They're going to die because they would rather sit there and freeze to death than take the life-saving measures of just two men just stripping naked and keeping each other warm. They can't handle that, so they're going to die. This right? movie should be called The Bro. Yeah. The Bro. <laughs> so, taking that a little further, what if, you know, these two men, what if they're both the thing? Right. They've right. both been taken over. Right. But because the thing takes on uh, the look of everybody that it takes over, it maybe also takes on some of their personality and some of their idiosyncrasies and things like that. So the thing actually absorbs toxic masculinity and as a result is led to its own oblivion right. <laughs> because it's now mimicking human men who are toxic <laughs> and so it, it sort of mutually assures its own destruction sitting across from itself and it can't cuddle right it, can't, it just really this the, the moral of the story is just like just cuddle right sometimes you just you just need yeah. to cuddle right if there is a moral to this story, I think more cuddling. Is... More cuddling, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Talk to your kids. Right. Be nice to them. Yeah, cuddle them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be like John Wayne. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, with like a Fu Manchu and weird makeup. Yeah. You know, you know, <laughs> oh, God. Going back to the game, just gone. <laughs> like he spread his, like, that's, if there's anything similar, more similar to the thing, it's, 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 it's him and it's, it's that character. <laughs> he goes around, he spreads his DNA over like an entire continent. Right. What is like tw- like 25% of the human population or more like has Genghis it's Khan's related DNA. related to Genghis right? Khan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Next week we're going to be covering Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. So make sure you check that out before next week. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMoviePod reddit r slash horror movie pod find us on facebook at head cannon pod and instagram head cannon pod you guys have a good night yeah. and uh this this has been head cannon <laughs> <laughs>